Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would. Philippians chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll look at both of these passages, Philippians 1 and 1 Peter 2. Continuing in our series, Truth or Not, what we're looking at is trying to figure out what we as Christians, not just American Christians, but Christians should believe. We have this understanding that the Jewish faith led into and was fulfilled by the Christian faith. So when we talk about what we believe, you often hear the phrase Judeo-Christian values. It's kind of a buzzword anymore. What it means is Christian teachings. Christian and Jewish teachings about morality and ethics and how we should live and think and do those kinds of things. And we're going to talk about that during this whole series. So today, as Dave said, we're going to be talking about how to find the ultimate value in this life. What things are really important. We so often think about the things of this life. And we're going to talk about how that fits into the whole scheme of following Jesus. Philippians 1 and 1 Peter chapter 2. As always, we begin with prayer. An opportunity, one of the values that we hold as Christians is the privilege of prayer. Not only that we can go through the motions of prayer and speak to God, but we have the privilege of gaining an audience with him. In ancient cultures, there was this understanding that if you wanted to talk to the king, you had to gain permission. And you had to gain an audience with the king. And to do so without permission would mean instant death in typical cultures. But God had this idea, and he used that imagery, that you can come to me and pray, God said. And so when you pray in the name of Jesus, you are in the presence of the king. And you have permission and an audience, and the king pays attention to you. And just for a moment, you have absolute and undivided attention. So we take that very seriously here. So I'll give you a few moments to pray silently about those issues that concern you. Then I'll close and we'll look at this passage together. Would you join me, please, as we pray? Heavenly Father, again we come before you in prayer, acknowledging your worth, your power, and your supremacy of your all things. Father, you are a sovereign God, absolutely powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, timeless and eternal, full of grace and truth. Father, we worship you and you alone. We recognize you are your power over all. Not that you are the biggest God, but you are the only God. We worship you, Father. We take this time to stop everything, to show that you are the number one value to us. This time slot, Sunday morning, is important to us. And we give it to you, Father, every week. Today we come to you, asking you to be with us, that you would give us grace and peace. We pray, Father, that you would work in our lives and teach us from your word that you would heal us, that you would forgive us, that you would give us another chance. 
Heavenly Father, we ask that in this week, in our nation, you would give us wisdom and discernment. There are a variety of voices and influences in this culture. These voices threaten to divide us, regardless of how the elections turn out. Help us to stand together. Help us to accept the fact that good people can disagree, and they can still be good people. Help it get past this nonsense that if you don't agree with me, I don't want you in my life. Forgive us, Father, for falling prey to the partisan politics and hacks in this culture. Deliver us from the evil that is everywhere. As always, we pray for our soldiers and first responders and their families. Use them to bring peace and save lives. We pray for their families. Give them comfort as they are separated. We pray for those who will gain power this week as a result of elections. We pray that you would give them wisdom and grace and patience. We pray, Father, that those in power would make decisions that could benefit the body and not just one half of the body. Help us to see down the road and make decisions accordingly. As always, Father, we thank you. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's easy to give lip service to what you say is important, isn't it? I was talking, I, my family was in one of those group doctor's meetings. Some of you have had those where you and the, the family and the kids and grandkids and, and then the patient and then the doctor comes in. You know, they're kind of awkward situations because doctors always use big words and, you know, there's that understanding of what's going on, what are you trying to say, etc., etc. And we were having one of those conversations with my mother-in-law and she was there and she was the patient. And we were all there. There were 10 or 12 of us in the room. And then a doctor came in. And of course, I'm sure that doctors dread this because they have to talk in normal speak and that's hard for them to do and talk to us mere mortals and try to say things that we can understand. And so he was telling us all these kinds of things and he was telling her the importance of diet and exercise and all those kinds of things, which would have been wonderful except for he weighed at least 450 pounds, every bit of five foot six of him. And obviously one of those guys that paid lip service to the idea of something being important. It was hard for us to take him seriously. We didn't say anything to his face anyway, but you can imagine the gossip after he left. Lip service is easy, isn't it? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. In our culture, we have problems with this doing what you say thing. And everybody seems to have this problem. On screen is a picture of a guy. You know these two. Now, I don't read the gossip mags and all those kinds of things and I try to stay away from all this nonsense but part of the nonsense has crept into the national conversation. You know these guys, Tom Brady, Gisele Bündchen, married 13 years, three beautiful kids. They are the perfect family. Everybody thought. Everything was wonderful. He's goat, greatest of all time. Doesn't mean he acts like a goat. Mean he's the greatest of all time. I can tell you about goats and he's only partly like that. But greatest one of the greatest, if not the greatest, football quarterback ever. She is one of the famous, if not the most famous and wealthiest supermodel 
in history. She's just fabulously wealthy, gorgeous, and all those kinds of things. And they were famous, and I, I wish I could say this was just gossip, but they've made the national news every night for the last three weeks, haven't they? If you've watched the news in the last three weeks, you've learned more than you ever wanted to learn about this wonderful couple because they're getting a divorce. To make matters even worse or more interesting, how, whatever your perspective is, she wrote a letter to him and it made the news and her letter has been published and in that letter she said she loved you. She said we respected him, loved him, but it was obvious that they were no longer a priority in his life because during football season he would play football, talk football, think football and that's all he did. And then in the off season he would think football, play football, talk football and then when he wasn't doing that with football he was involved in his various business interests. And she said, it's not a quote, it's obvious we're no longer important to you. And so this marriage of 13 years, which was kind of fantastic for rich and famous people to have, will end. Now, I know and you know that there's more going on than just he was busy. But isn't it tragic that a man who seemingly had everything, literally, is going to lose a lot of it? Simply because he didn't make it a priority to work on that marriage. It's easy to give lip service. It's easy to say, I love you. It's easy to say, I will be with you. It's easy to say, you are the center of my life. But it's harder to do. It goes for people that are married. It goes for people in jobs and careers. And guess what? It applies to Christians too. It's easy to say, I love Jesus. It's easy to say, I go to church all the time, I must be a good Christian. You know, we say things like that, or we think of that, we never say it because that would be silly. But we, we, we say the right things. But so oftentimes what we say isn't supported by what we do. My wife and I have had this discussion many times over over the years and 40 years in ministry and I'll talk to somebody and they'll give me all the right answers and my wife will say, well, what'd they say? I said, well, they gave me all the right answers. She goes, well, what does that mean? I said, I'll tell you in a couple of years because I've learned what people say isn't always what they mean. So today we're going to talk about that very idea of living up to the values that you say are important and even more importantly, Making sure that you truly believe the values that you say you believe in. Because I'm convinced that we do live by our values. It's just that the values we live by may not be the values that we say are important. We all value certain things. And we spend our time in a certain way. And we spend our energies in a certain way. Just the way Tom Brady did. He lived exactly according to his values. It's just that the values that he held aren't the values that he proclaimed. So today we're going to talk about that and we're going to start with this main idea up on screen that a faithful life is the best life. The Apostle Paul was a good guy. You would have liked him. He was a very intense type A driven guy. Very intelligent, accomplished tent maker. He was a Pharisee, which meant he was really intelligent. He was seen as a leader in the community. It wasn't an elected position, but it was a position of honor. Now, anybody could be a Pharisee if they lived up to it. 
They had to be very serious about their faith. An upright man. It was required that they be married and have children and be a good family man and all those kinds of things. And those were a lot of those requirements. And so uh, ragtags and rogues and troublemakers didn't fit the bill. If you were a Pharisee, you were really the cream of the crop. And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees in his own words. So he was top dog. He became more famous as he became a fighter of that evil cult Christianity. And that's how it was viewed. When he came along, Jesus came along, and Paul knew that Jesus was a rascal, and he had to be snuffed out, and even after the crucifixion, and he didn't believe the resurrection story, he was going to kill, make sure all those Christians were stopped. So he went on a rampage, got support of the government and the powers of be, and he was going to eliminate Christians. He was there when the first Christian, Stephen, was stoned. And then Paul had this dramatic conversion experience. You remember it. He was so dramatic that he was literally struck blind. And Jesus spoke to him and confronted him. He was taken to a town. A man whom Jesus had called was sent to witness to him, shared his faith. Paul received Jesus as Savior. And everything changed. Not only did he have to rework his theology, because everything he believed was not wrong, but incomplete. Wife left him, lost his family. Again, we know that just because a good Jewish woman would not stay with a guy who was tied to a radical cult. Lost his job, lost his standing in the community, no longer a Pharisee. Not just rejected, but hated because he was now standing for a faith that was wrong and everybody knew it. He became a Christian, became a preacher. Worse, he became an evangelist. The very traits and characteristics that had made him a powerful Pharisee made him an almost indomitable force for Jesus. He could not be stopped. And he wouldn't be stopped. He preached Jesus everywhere he went. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. Fact is, this letter was written from prison. We're not sure where. But it was from prison. And he wrote this letter and talked about his life and how following Jesus was hard. And yet it was a value that drove him because it was a value that he held and was the absolute thing that was important to him. So follow along with me if you would. Philippians 1. I'll read verses 21 through 25. Paul says this. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul said the gospel is important, and just so you'll know. The gospel is a story of Jesus. Crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to the Father. The rest of the story is, when you receive that crucified and resurrected Jesus as Savior, you get saved. Your, your sins are cleansed. You enter into this new life. The Holy Spirit comes within you. And you step up and live this life that is different because of your Christian convictions. So this is what Paul was teaching. Not just how to get saved, yes, 
But what to do after you get saved? Because some people don't understand. After you receive Jesus as Savior, there is a lifestyle of commitment and discipleship that God expects you to step up to. And he wants you to do that, and it's an obligation, but it's also privilege. Because it makes you privy to a life of blessing that is literally unavailable to those outside the faith. Look at verse 21. He starts here with this phrase, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's a really nice preacher way of saying, no matter what, the most important thing to me is Jesus. To live is Christ. To live is Christ means... When I'm on this earth, I will live for Jesus. I will talk about Jesus. I will live for Jesus. I will try to honor Jesus with my life. I will restrain myself according to Jesus. And I will extend myself according to Jesus. And when I die, I'll go and be with the Father. I'm going to be with Jesus. He was saying, I can't lose, wasn't he? Because if he was on this earth following Jesus, he would be blessed and experience the blessings of God. And when he died, rather than something to be afraid of, he would enter into the presence of God. You see, he, was, he had bought into the whole idea of this Jewish Christian theology that says, this life is wonderful, lived in faith, and in death we enter into an even more better and privileged existence. So on screen is an explanation of a little bit of what that means Verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Ultimate value. This means following Jesus for Paul was more important than anything else. Now, he did not leave his family. His family left him because he was Christian. He didn't leave that good Jewish life that he loved. He was thrown out of that good Jewish life that he loved. He lost everything. Because of that value. It was the most important thing in his life. And it didn't mean that he couldn't love his wife. It didn't mean that he couldn't have a good marriage with the Jewish woman. It meant that she would no longer tolerate that. But it wasn't on his part. He valued his family. But it was taken from him. Following Jesus is hard sometimes. I know that. And so do you. Sometimes it's hard to muster the courage to say the right thing, isn't it? Sometimes you know you should be doing something different to follow Jesus, but it's inconvenient or expensive or you just don't want to. And to submit to Jesus, to value him above all else, means that you are willing to do whatever he wants on a moment's notice. Not just when you're in the mood. You know, we're all really faithful when we're in the mood or if God is calling us to do what we want to do anyway. But are we as faithful? And it's not what we want. You have to answer that question. In verse 25, he talks about his ministry, full of life-changing truths. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress and joy in the faith. One of the values that the gospel had given him was this idea that these people that were in his life were his priority. That he would do what valued and helped them And his actions demonstrated that they were important to him. Like I said, probably in prison at this time. We're pretty sure of it. Not sure where because he was in prison at least twice. But he was in prison, willing to suffer and go through all sorts of things. Willing to lose everything so that he might preach those gospel truths that would give them life. Again, not just the message of salvation. Yes, but more. 
when you think of a lot of the moral and ethical teachings of the New Testament, you are generally thinking of the writings of Paul. You probably know that he wrote half of the New Testament at least. He wrote about difficult teachings. Spend your money wisely. Avoid debt. Control your impulses and passions. Be loyal to your spouse. Stop violence. Be peacemakers. Control your tongue. See, radical teachings like that, that have the capacity to give people a good life and control themselves and have a better culture, those are the things that Paul was teaching. Those are the things that he valued. Not just because he found them that they work in his own life, but he knew that because they were of God, they would work on other people's lives. So his value was that he would teach and practice those gospel truths. Verse 25 also talks about the value of people. Some of the people to whom Paul wrote were his enemies. He didn't care. He loved them anyway. You have to understand and remember this, that Paul was, he was loud and irascible, kind of contentious. He was an arguer by nature. That's what made him so powerful. And he had a, a way of rubbing people the wrong way. And so a lot of people hated Paul. He didn't care. He loved them anyway. He told them that. He loved them. And he did what he could to help them. He valued people. See, this is one of those values that's part of that Judeo-Christian heritage where you love people. Not just the people that you normally like. Not just people that are like you or that like you back. You value people and their people's lives. And you share the gospel with them. And you treat them fair. And you do what you can to help them. That's what Christians do. That's the Christian ethic. That you treat people like you want to be treated. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Jesus said. See, there's that Judeo-Christian value system that values people. It doesn't matter how they believe about politics. Now, folks, we have some lessons to learn here, don't we? We hate each other in this culture. The fact is, it's acceptable. It's cool. It's almost prescribed. If people disagree with you, you must hate them. You must not talk to them. You must not befriend them. It's not possible. Nonsense, Paul would say. Nonsense, Jesus would say. I'm not condemning anybody in particular. You could turn on the news and find plenty who don't understand. But you as Christians have bought into this value system given you by God that says you will love people. Period. How they respond to you is irrelevant. You love them. You treat them respectfully. Watch your mouth. Watch your hands. Just because that's a value that you've been bought into and you've been taught. So this is where Paul was. This is that Christian value system. These are values that are given to us. So that in this life, we can be better than us. God doesn't call you to be better than anybody else. He calls you to be better than you are naturally. By nature, you may be narrow-minded and bigoted. God calls you to be better. By nature, you may be loud and difficult. God calls you to be better than you. That's a value system, isn't it? Short-term values come and go. Long-term values are something that you hold into death for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So what you're going to do with that today is be challenged. Next on screen is this idea. 
for me to live as Christ and die as gain. And the next screen is very simple. Now is the best time to redirect your life. I was talking to a good friend years ago. About, it's been over 30 years ago. Tammy and I bought this house out in the woods, outside of Rolla. And it was a beautiful place, had a long straight driveway. It was 800 feet long, the driveway was. Not a tree in sight. I thought, good grief, how would you not have trees? So, I had one of my buddies there, and he was an older guy. He was, well, he was my age that I am now, so he was older than me. But, you know, he was a good old guy. I said, Leland, I think I'm going to plant some trees. He goes, well, you know, you've missed the best time. I said, what? He goes, yeah, the best time. And he had worked for the forager department, so I knew he would tell me the right thing to do about trees. I said, well, when should I plant trees? He goes, Kev, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. And that was my response. And when I quit laughing, he said, or today. And he was right, wasn't he? So I planted those trees. And every time I go back to visit Raleigh, guess where I drive? I have to see those trees that I planted. And whoever bought the house, now I don't know, they are privileged to see the trees every day that I planted. Big, wonderful, full-bodied tulip poplars that have grown over that 700, 800-foot driveway. And it's wonderful. The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago or today. Now, the reason that has relevance here is every one of us have missed opportunities in our lives, haven't we? For whatever reason, God has wanted to do something with us. We've been called to do something. We've been called to be faithful. And for some reason, we didn't. And here we are. And we can go through life and regret that and do nothing. Or we can be confronted with this and say, you know, I missed it 20 years ago. Today, I will plant. And this is what God calls us to do. So turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Talking to Christians, a beleaguered group, still considered a cult. In fact, it was for at least the first hundred years in the Roman government. It was just hard to be a Christian. And they were singled out and persecuted almost everywhere in the empire. Sometimes it was official. Sometimes it was just permitted. And they were not taught to be quiet. You know what they were taught? Be strong. Be faithful. Live out your faith. On screen are some ideas that we can gain from this. First of all, in verse 11, recognize your place. He used the phrase strangers and aliens, meaning if you live as Christian on this earth, you will not fit. Your customs will be different. Your manner will be different. I told you this, my daughter accept, adopted an Afghani family and we've eaten with them several times. And it continues to amaze me as to how out of place they are in every way, shape, and form. They grew up in Afghanistan. They don't speak the language. They're learning, but they don't. They, uh, driving is the hardest thing on the planet. Driving in America anyway, I guess. 
And it's just incredibly difficult. They don't understand cars. They don't understand traffic. They don't understand police. The fact is they're terrified of police because of their experiences. And it is obvious that they are foreigners. It takes you 10 seconds or less to recognize that they are not like us. Peter says, this is who you are on this earth. You don't fit because your value system, who you are, is different. The things of this earth, as important as they are, really don't mean that much because we understand that we're all going to leave everything. Everything. Strangers and aliens. Our language is different. That's becoming more and more the case, isn't it? I remember when I was six years old, because it was yesterday, my mama swatted me like nobody's business with a switch that she made me cut myself. Because I said a four-letter word that wouldn't get me in trouble anymore, but I'm not going to say it here for obvious reasons, because it might be getting me in trouble. But, but it was just a simple word. I turn on the TV, and I hear it over and over and over and over in literally every show. It's no longer a swear word, cuss word, slang term. It's just the way people talk. And on and on it goes, and there are a lot of words like that. Words that were offensive to us and would not be heard in public years ago, and now they're fodder for almost everybody. Sexual behaviors that we were taught years ago or never acceptable are now on screen every day. Strangers and aliens, he said, meaning you don't fit here. If you follow Jesus, you're not going to necessarily by choice be an oddball, but you're going to be an oddball. You're going to be odd man out because you don't, fit another thing abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul meaning keeping your impulses under control your sexual impulses your anger your emotions those things that get you in trouble keep them under control you know that is a Christian value I was talking to a missionary to Turkey years ago and we talked about self-control it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit he said, you know, they don't have that in Turkey. I said, what do you mean they don't have it? He goes, it's not a value. He goes, it's not a gift of the Holy Spirit. They don't even think about it. He said, so when people got together in family gatherings, they would fight. And when people got together and discussed politics, they would fight. And then when people would get together and do government, they would fight. And literally everything was characterized by violence in that culture at the time. Because restraining yourself, restraining your impulses and your lust... That's a Christian value. It's not a worldly value in every culture. Finally, your life is witness. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Did you see why? Look at verse 12. So even though they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Meaning, live your life for Jesus Make sure people see your best every day because they might need Jesus. They might be open to the gospel. If you're just like everybody else and you're not different than anybody else in any other way and people think, yeah, he goes to church but he's just like me, talks just like I do, and etc., etc., why would they listen to you if you say, my life has been changed by Jesus? If your life hasn't been changed by Jesus, you're no witness for the faith. Paul says, Peter says, this is why you do this. So that when the time comes, people will hear the message of Jesus. Wish I could say that it's easy to change, but old dog, new tricks, and all those kinds of things, right? 
The doctor that was morbidly obese with my mom is 10 years later, still morbidly obese. We had another meeting and he's still there. Not going to change. I'm not going to say, look, buddy, you need to push away from the table a little bit. You know, he's not, he's not open to that. But you never know when people will respond to your witness. You never know. You cannot know. You never know what people are going through. You never know what that nice neighbor across the street is going through, what they might think of, what they might need. Live your life so that others can learn about you. See, this is a value system that we gain from following Jesus. It's not just, I go to church on Sundays. That's one of them. But that's the easiest part to do. I mean, I know. I used to be on the other side of the pulpit. I can sleep through anything, just like you. I know. You know, the fact that I sit through a sermon doesn't necessarily mean I'm listening. I get it. It's up to you, isn't it? But as you buy into this faith, and you follow Jesus, and you allow scriptures to challenge you, and you allow the Holy Spirit to influence you, you become more like those strangers and aliens. You follow Jesus. You become known as Christian. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. On screen is one passage of scripture. Read this with me if you would. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought for a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Our value system as Christian, not as American, but as Christian, is to follow Jesus and be a witness. Sometimes it will lead you to be a better American. Sometimes it will lead you to challenge your government. The idea that Christians and government go together, it's a, di a difficult thing. Because every time Christians have gained power in history, it's been a disaster. So don't worry about that. Instead, just live out your faith, follow Jesus, and do what you can in your circle of influence. And allow God to use you so that others might be ready in the day of visitation. The deacons are going to come and get in place. <laughs> Communion was given to us by God through Jesus so that we would be reminded that we follow Jesus. It's a big deal. When we take communion, we are reminded that Jesus died on the cross, that he shed his blood, lost his flesh, came back from the dead. In this church, we do it like this. In just a moment, we're going to pray, and then you're going to stand forward and come forward and get a cup. And then you're going to go back and be seated. And look around, they're kind of hard to mess with. If you see somebody struggling with the tabs, help them. All right? And we'll take this blood and flesh together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your presence. Help us. Help us to live for Jesus every day. Help us to buy into the value system that you've given us.
Help us to apply it to our lives. Use this meal to remind us of who we are in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul tells this story. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul explains, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when you get a chance to talk to your friends about Jesus, or bring them in to have them to do communion, just help them to understand, this is symbol. It's a symbolic act. We believe that Jesus died on the cross. The flesh. We believe that he bled and died. The blood. The wine. And when we do this, we proclaim, this is what we believe. This is who we are. You buy into this understanding that we follow Jesus, crucified and resurrected Son of God. Now, Nate's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn of invitation. Make those commitments that will allow Jesus to have more influence Please. in your life, if you would. going to come and lead us in a closing prayer. Bob, come and lead us if you would. Follow Jesus. Best advice you'll ever get. Father, be with us as we go forth this week, knowing that there is more to this life, our life, and the lives of others that we may have effect or influence on. Let us do unto others as you would have done and influence somebody along the way. In Jesus' name. Amen.